0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. This is one of over a thousand programs we've uh, done at the Commonwealth Club, uh, bringing you uh, authors by live streaming um, since the pandemic began now almost four years ago. So uh, today we have Sam Lebevick, Lebevick, excuse me, and... Uh, his book, The State of Silence, it's on the history of the Espionage Act and the rise of the secrecy regime in America. Um, it's a great example, unfortunately, of how something starts off small and you give it a century and you don't know where it's going to end up. Um, and we, we have a pretty good idea uh, of, of where it is now. But uh, welcome to the Commonwealth Club, uh, Mr. Lubbock.
0: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: So uh, your, your book laid out a, a very good... Uh, duality here with the Espionage Act as to what it was trying to accomplish. Um, and there's some terms that are common in the secrecy uh, field. But what I'd like is uh, for you to explain that those terms meant something different uh, in the 19th century before we got to the Espionage Act right at the beginning of the 20th. So can you give an idea about what people, when they, people said, I, I want my First Amendment rights. How is it different from today? Because it seems like it was a little bit different. Yeah.
0: Sure. So, I mean, on the question of the First Amendment in particular, uh, you know, the First Amendment is added in the, in the Bill of Rights. So it's been in the Constitution since the late 18th century that says that Congress shall make no law that interferes with freedom of the speech. Um, but like all legal phrases, freedom of the speech means certain things uh, and it doesn't mean other things. Um, so even today, when we have a very well-respected right to free speech, no one sort of thinks, that insider trading or blackmail would be part of your right to free speech, even though it involves speech acts. And so there's always been parts of speech that are outside the constitutional protection. And in the 19th century, uh, that that was a much larger category. People basically thought that the right to free speech meant the right to engage in political dialogue, but not the right to abuse the public good by engaging in speech that was against the common good. Mm -hmm. So you get a whole variety of things that are censored, Uh, abolitionist speech in the South during slavery, a lot of women's, uh, rights speech, basic women's health is considered sort of obscene to talk about in public. And so you can't send in the mail basic information about birth control. Uh, criticism of public officials at various points has been considered outside the protection of freedom of speech. So in, in the early 20th century, before uh, the passage of the Espionage Act, um, there's a pretty widely understood idea that there are limits to the right to free speech and that the constitutional right doesn't let you say what you want. And actually the the sorts of political speech that are covered could be fairly narrow in some instances.
1: You mentioned the one thing about uh, women's health and so on, and you mentioned that they can't, so they couldn't distribute information through the mail. And I just wanted to bring, I mean, that was the way that all information was distributed, basically, the newspapers and the mail and newspapers through the mail. Um, And, uh, so there was a, an example of um, a left-wing uh, paper, The Masses, um, that was not allowed to be uh, distributed through the mail uh, at one point, I think that around 1920 or something like that. And you, you, you talked a little bit about the evolution of the uh, ideas of uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes on this subject, a uh, really interesting story about how Friends influenced him. And also I found it interesting as a lawyer that that this idea about, you know, uh, his example that he used of you can't shout fire in a crowded theater was really uh, inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Because people still use it as a very appropriate example, um, but it's inappropriate. So there are a couple of things to, to cover about Oliver Wendell Holmes, because I thought it was very interesting, the, the switch in perspective that you get on him from his youth to his uh, later.
0: Yeah. yeah. So the question that really comes up in World War One, when the Espionage Act is passed, is what are the limits on free speech during wartime? and the prevailing idea during the war was that it was just like those previous cases i talked about if there are things that are against the common good you don't have a right to say them and given that the united states was in a war a lot of members of the wilson administration and a lot of patriotic organizations thought you didn't have the right to criticize the war mm-hmm. and in the espionage act which was passed in 1917 just after the us enters the war one of the clauses says that you don't have you it's illegal to interfere with the draft mm-hmm. uh, on the grounds that the public good has decided we need to draft soldiers to fight in a war. If you interfere with that, that's a kind of crime. Uh, You know, the logic at the time is to say, if you criticize the war, that makes it less likely that soldiers will want to turn up when they're drafted or go to fight. And that will interfere with America's effort to uh, to engage in the war effectively. No different, they say, than if you sort of like held a soldier back physically from joining the draft or you interfered with the rail that was to deliver the soldiers to the front. And the court's Are pretty deferential to that claim during the war. Uh, One of the early counterexamples is actually when they deny mailing rights to the masses, the left-wing magazine you talked about, um, on the grounds that it's criticizing the war and interfering with the draft, interfering with the war effort. Uh, And Justice uh, Learned Hand, who's a sort of will be one of the sort of great judges of the 20th century, never to sit on the Supreme Court, argues early on in the war that actually. That the masses should have had the right to say those kind of things under the vision of the First Amendment uh, that he understood. Um, but he's quickly overturned and the masses is barred from the mails. And that's the story of free speech claims throughout the war. They're really unsuccessful. About 2,000 uh, left-wing critics of the war are prosecuted for speech crimes. About a 1,000 of them go to jail. Uh, the most famous of those is probably Eugene Debs, the perennial socialist candidate for president, who gives a pretty mild-mannered stump speech in favor of socialism in 1918 and is sentenced to jail for 10 years for what is seen as a criticism of the war. And that's the state of play. You have very little right to free speech through the war. In 1919, in the spring of 1919, once the war is over, a number of these cases make their way to the Supreme Court where people have appealed their prosecution under the Espionage Act and say, no, this is unconstitutional. The First Amendment means we have a right to this sort of speech. And the first three of those cases, uh, Eugene Debs, uh, a, a guy called Frowerk, who was editing a German-language newspaper, and then the third is uh, a Philadelphia socialist called Charles Schenck, who'd also gone to jail for criticizing the war. All three of those decisions are decided unanimously by the Supreme Court, uh, and the Supreme Court says in all three cases, none of these people had the right to free speech, that the prosecutions were completely valid. And all three decisions are written by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, And it's in the Schenck decision that Holmes says what Schenck was doing by criticizing the war was basically like falsely shouting fire in a theater. He's basically mischievously creating a panic that's going to interfere with the public good and you have no meaningful right to that sort of speech, which is, I think, a really strange metaphor. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it a lot turns on the fact that he assumed that the shout of fire was false, that there was no legitimate interest Mm -hmm. that someone might have in criticizing uh, the war. It also assumes that this pamphlet that Schenck put out, which basically said, please write to your Congress to petition against the draft was like creating a stampede in a fire, in a, in a, in a theater, which is a little nuts. I mean, like most <laughs> pamphlets, no one really probably read it, it have that much have that much impact. But in the spring, the first time the Supreme Court has really considered what the rights to political dissent might be under the First Amendment, they unanimously decide that it doesn't include criticism of the war effort. And that's the state of play. And Deb stays in jail. Over that summer, a number of sort of progressive journalists and activists and lawyers begin to criticize the decisions. They've looked back at what happened during the war and they think that it's really not great for American democracy to have such strong censorship. And they begin sort of a lobbying campaign to try to convert Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, to their way of seeing what free speech should mean. They give him pamphlets to read and newspaper articles and works of philosophy like John Stuart Mill And then in 1919, in the fall, there's another Espionage Act case that makes its way to the Supreme Court. And this one involves a series of uh, anarchists in the kind of Jewish immigrant world of New York calling for a general strike. And seven of the justices in the Supreme Court basically just reapply the decisions from the spring and say, no rights to free speech in this case, the prosecutions are justified. And they're quoting Holmes as precedent in those earlier cases. Mm -hmm. But Oliver Wendell Holmes, under that kind of pressure campaign over the spring, has changed his mind. And he actually issues a dissent in the Abrams case. And it's in that dissent that he says that actually we shouldn't be doing censorship, that the First Amendment has to mean something like a free trade, in ideas, a free market of ideas. And that's in dissent. It doesn't help the particular uh, anarchists that are prosecuted who all go to jail and are then ultimately deported to the Soviet Union. Uh, but it does lay a kind of platform upon which decades of civil liberties activism will help construct the modern First Amendment as a kind of more robust marketplace of ideas. So the Espionage Act is crucial to the history of the First Amendment because it forces the kind of first clarification of what the First Amendment means and what the modern right to free speech will look like, and it comes out of that kind of change of mind that Holmes has over the course of 1919.
1: A lot of the times when you read about that part of uh, our history around World War One. Uh, it's presented as a, a, an attack on the left. Um, and, and, uh, but there was a very interesting example that you used of a filmmaker who made a war about the American Revolutionary War, um, and in that he was very enthusiastic, but he was uh, against the British. You know, He made the British look bad in the movie. Of course, they were the bad guys in, in the Revolutionary War. But because the Brits were our allies in World War I, that was considered against the war, and he went to jail. That's correct. I find that fascinating. Did he stay in jail or did he get out after a, do you know? I mean, a 10 year sentence or something, you know?
0: It was a 10 year sentence, um, which was the standard sentence at the time. Most of the, uh, most of the the sort of speech prisoners who go to jail for criticizing the war um, are released on sort of amnesties. Well, they're sort of released in the early 1920s, uh, part of Warren Harding's kind of return to normalcy. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of civil liberties activism, actually, about getting these people out of jail, which was no joke. I mean, going yeah. to jail obviously cuts you off from the ability to support your family. Um, you know, early 1920s jails weren't the most sanitary places. A lot of people died from things like tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a lot of people are let out as part of a, a, a sort of pressure campaign in the early 1920s. And then in the early New Deal, uh, a lot of them are granted amnesty with hindsight, a kind of recognition that those, these prosecutions should never have happened in the first place.
1: So... After World War One, I, I mean, after years after World War One, and things calmed down a bit, and this wasn't a really big deal, except for before we leave that time, I think we should talk about the start of of J Edgar Hoover in the Palmer Raids, uh, because it's it's uh, everybody knows about J Edgar Hoover, uh, at least that are younger than than uh, or older than fifty, um, and and the influence that he had on on things, but I don't think very many people know what he did as a young man to get his start. Yeah, so.
0: I mean, part of the the story in 1919 that I think is particularly remarkable about Oliver Wendell Holmes and him changing his mind on what speech should be censored or not, is that the ni- 1919 uh, was a really panicked year in American political history. Uh, you know, the war uh, had really created a lot of turmoil around the world. There are a lot of revolutions. Obviously, the the Bolshevik Revolution, but there were you know the revolution in Mexico was still going on. There were uprisings in Ireland, in the U.S. There's a lot of racial pogroms as sort of people are are demobilized and return home. Uh, There's a Spanish flu that's killing a lot of people that's creating kind of more panic and anxiety. I think in many ways, as I was writing it during the pandemic year and the Black Lives Matter year, I could see a lot of parallels in these two Mm -hmm. moments. And in that context, uh, the Attorney General, uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, who's eyeing the White House because Woodrow Wilson has had a stroke and is incapacitated and there's a power vacuum. He lay, he sort of begins a, a real early version of a kind of nationalist, uh, national security populist platform at, to run for the presidency. And he's calling for more censorship. He calls for the deportation of immigrants and crackdowns on radicals. And in the context, in the middle of that year, there's a series of bombings by anarchists. They actually send uh, bombs to uh, Olive Wendell Holmes's house. Uh, for the devs decision they send them to, and they send them to a mitchell palmer's home and the first wave of them all kind of don't get delivered a lot of them because they don't have enough postage on them yeah <laughs> one, The second wave of bombs does actually blow up the the, mm-hmm. the, the ground floor of, of palmer's house uh and there's sort of what's a gory scene in in sort of northwest dc the you know there's parts of the bomber slips and he himself blows up mm. uh when he's trying to plant the bomb and Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt actually live in a house across the street, and they kind of have bits of the unfortunate bomber's body kind of splattered on their front front at their home. Mm -hmm. And Palmer, in that context, begins constructing really the modern American national security state. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on him politically, but he also sees an opportunity to show that he's tough on foreign radicals. And one of the things he does in terms of advocating for new laws, uh, new practices of deportation, is he hires... Uh, and promotes a young uh, guy in the file office uh, called J. Edgar Hoover, who's about 24 years old at that age and who's built his kind of reputation and his skill set. He worked in the Library of Congress mm. um, and sort of had mastered its file system. It's kind of like the big technology of the time. It's like <laughs> you're hiring the young tech guy uh, who understands your platform to run things for you. And Hoover, working with Palmer, uh, really begins to build his reputation in the early 1920s. Mm. Um, and that's a, you know, it's a, it's not a, a proud moment in American history. Uh, as People are treated really terribly. People are deported on sort of scanty evidence. Uh, but Hoover gets himself to the top of what's called the New Radical Division, mm-hmm. uh, and he'll sort of be able to ride through the scandals that plagued the early Bureau of Investigation in the early 1920s, and then by the mid-1920s, from that position, rise to become the head of the FBI, and he'll be in place for the next five decades, mm-hmm. uh, having learnt lessons in those years about how to kind of wage war on what he sees as an un-american threat of foreigner radicalism.
1: You mentioned that during the war, people were afraid of German spies in the book. This is about German spies. And, and you, you mentioned that part of the difficulty or the, the fear was that the Germans were trying to get the Mexicans to join in the war and that they promised that if they helped them win the war... That they would get back the southwest of America that was taken in the war against Mexico, so how far along did that go i mean obviously mexico did Mexico get involved did they i mean then there was a they they had a revolution there too, but was that just something that scared people or did it actually was it actually a real plan
0: yeah I'm not entirely sure I'm not a historian of Mexico enough to know i mean I, my understanding is that that was that that Zimmerman telegram, which sort of reveals those plans, is actually picked up by British security mm. as a kind of offer coming from the Germans to the Mexicans, and then very cleverly leaked to the Americans to sort of help bring the Americans in on the British side of the war. Mm. Uh, how realistic it is, I, I don't have a good sense. Um, but I think what's telling about it is that You know, there's this is an era of real panic about foreign spies. I mean, you can sort of run a long 30-year window back to the 1880s, 1890s, where you think about the French have the Dreyfus Affair, Mm -hmm. uh, the British have a sequence of kind of panics about German spies. It's the era when the modern spy novel is born and people are reading kind of sensationalist accounts of spies. Uh, And the US has its same version of a spy scare in the 1890s through about the 1910s, focused particularly on... Uh, Japanese spies on the West Coast and in Hawaii and the Philippines. And I think the way that I understand what's happening in this period more broadly is that these are empires that really at this point have grown rapidly in the late 19th century and have taken over vast, vast parts of the world. And then they're trying to secure those. I mean, the first kind of national security bureaucracies in all cases are actually imperial security bureaucracies to try to maintain the hierarchies of power that come with those empires, and that brings a lot of anxiety with it, because it's hard to maintain the Philippines as a sort of distant colony, and you're worried that Japan is a rising power close by, and they might take it. And so the Zimmerman telegram in that context also looks like a kind of anxiety about losing recently conquered territory. Um, It just that it happens to be continental US territory that we now take for granted was always going to be part of the US, Mm. but from the point of 1917... I mean, it's only 67 years earlier, the War of 1848, that that mm. territory was conquered. Um, so I think the sort of cultural underpinnings of these panics and why they're so resonant have a lot to do with the fact that what's being secured is a really unequal world order with imperial powers trying to control a lot of territory.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. You, you talked about the the s- beginnings of the use of the words national security. And because you put it in this context of, of the... Um, insecurity of empires that had just been established that maybe the word national insecurity might've been a better description of, (laughs) of why we did what we did after that, rather than for national security, especially was true when we got to Truman, but we're not there yet. (laughs) Your stories. So um, let's, let's take up how FDR dealt with this issue. I mean, he, he wanted to change the way America did things um, and was successful. Um, but he certainly ran into a lot of a lot of pressure against it. Did he have anything to do with the rise of the security state?
0: Um, I mean, during World War II, mm-hmm.
1: absolutely. Uh, you know,
0: during the New Deal, the story is not really one sort of centered on the presidency. Right uh, during the, during the interwar period, I think it's really the evolution of the espionage laws. Uh, are strange. They're in these kind of pokey places that you wouldn't pay a lot of attention to. The Office of Naval Intelligence is kind of important, and the Navy and the, and the Army are beginning to develop their own systems of secrecy. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that it's so confusing, I think, as a period, uh, has to do with what's strange about the Espionage Act that we maybe should get on the table, uh, which is alongside those parts of the Espionage Act that say you shouldn't interfere with the draft are uh, what you might think of as more classic espionage prohibitions. That there's, so there's one set of part of the law that makes it illegal to give information to a foreign government, what we would think of as classic spying, and that makes a lot of sense. And that comes into the Espionage Act from an earlier 1911 Defence Secrets Act that came out of that moment of Japanese spy scares. There's another section just next to that espionage section that is a sequence of prohibitions about how you handle information relating to the national defense. And these are really the secrecy laws, section 793 of the criminal code today, and they're largely unchanged since 1917. And all of these laws really say uh, a sequence of sort of prohibitions around what you are allowed and not allowed to do with information relating to the national defense. You can't hold it without authorization. You can't give it to someone without authorization. And the problem with them all as laws is that they never define what information relating to the national defense is. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that the 1917 draft laws were actually going to give Woodrow Wilson's presidency the power to define the terms, Mm -hmm. give the president the authority to decide what is information relating to the national defense. And those sections were cut by Congress, presumably because Congress didn't want to give the president that much ability to kind of classify information and keep it secret. Mm -hmm. And so... The law is passed without those sections that define the terms in it, and they're never replaced. Mm -hmm. So you've got these laws in the interwar years that say you can't regulate information relating to the national... You can't disclose information relating to the national defense, but no one really knows what information relating to the national defense is. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of legal problem. The Supreme Court weighs in on it at various points, and it's a bureaucratic problem. Mm -hmm. And so you get in the interwar years, the army and the navy begin their own processes of classification. And they say that this is information relating to the national defense. And in the mid 1930s, uh, the army and the Navy make a little bit of a kind of conceptual shift. They say, well, we're not just gonna classify information that's related to the national defense. We're also gonna classify information that's related to the national security. Mm -hmm. And at the time, this new concept of national security was coming into vogue uh, in kind of think tanks. There's one at Princeton that's very famous. And the idea was that national security is a much broader category than just national defense. National defense might just apply to the army. Mm -hmm. The national security applies to anything you need to do to maintain the security of the nation. So it would cover a kind of more geopolitical vision of foreign policy, but also a more national security vision of domestic politics around uh, production, uh, um, technology, and so forth. And so there's a period of kind of experimentation I see in the interwar years. It's not happening directly under the the watch of uh, FDR. I mean, he has his mind on other things in the New Deal. Mm -hmm. But by the time that World War II breaks out, uh, FDR will then issue begin issuing sort of executive orders that extend those classification processes across the government for the duration of the war and begin to try to make sense of what the Espionage Act clauses meant. Um, And that period of World War II experimentation is important. Um, But it's only a sort of halfway measure, and it doesn't resolve things. That will take until the Truman presidency uh, for the classification system to take on its modern form.
1: Right. Uh, One of the things you mentioned is that the classification system didn't really exist um, earlier than that period of time. Um, And it's just this, as you said, undefined terms uh, about national defense and then national security. Um, But you also mentioned that it it kind of, we mostly borrowed from the British, um, the terms and and the uh, classification the british had that in place for quite a while already i mean their empire had been in, in place for a lot longer so
0: yeah so the defence secrets act which is the origins of the secrecy clauses that we still have today um they're copied from british official secrets act clauses in the late 19th century uh, they're mm-hmm. copied over in 1911 uh and then the first kind of distinctions between the secrecy markings you know we now have the classic sort of top secret secret classified uh in the early years there was also a restricted category um, those seem to have been brought back by the army uh, in particular from World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, but they actually, there was, uh, as the army was working with the British and the French in Europe, they realised they needed to sort of standardise the stamps they were using on material so that it could circulate more effectively among the allies. And that seems to be the origins of where the the, uh, the US uh, military services took these kind of classification systems. Uh, during World War II, top secret is added, that's borrowed from the British Uh, as well. Uh, and then they're kind of entrenched in domestic U S practice. And then in, in the early cold war, they'll be entrenched in executive orders. So in the broadest sense, I think, uh, you're right that these are systems modeled on the British. Um, but by the cold war, I think, uh, you know, the, the pupil becomes the master uh, and the U S really becomes the kind of cutting edge of secrecy technology.
1: All right. So we win the war and, uh, And we find that one of our allies, which we kind of guessed all along, was going to be our biggest problem after the war. Um, One of the things that you mentioned is that uh, there was a lot of fear of spying during World War II. And it was focused on the Germans and the Japanese, who didn't seem to be doing much. A lot of funny stories about their incompetence in in, in your book. Um, But that the Russians actually, the Soviets, were actually pretty good at spying already. Um, and, and that they were gathering a bunch of industrial information, uh, etc. So um, when that was discovered, um, there was the Red Scare, uh, the post-World War II Red Scare. But you compare it to the, there being a Red Scare, of course, uh, right after World War I because of, of the Bolshevik Revolution had just been in place. But you said that there was a little different tenor between the two. Um, why don't you say a little different style in terms of... And I was wondering if you could because it seemed to me like the second one was we were a little bit more confident we were going to win in the, after World War Two against the Reds, uh, but but still uh, more afraid that we didn't have uh, as much ability to do it. In both cases, we were scared.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, so the the way I understand the first Red Scare, which really begins during the First World War and continues into 1919, is that it it, it's, uh, it has a lot of often state-sanctioned, but really mob violence as one of its main technologies. So during the war, you know there are 70 lynchings in the United States. People who speak out against the war are, are very badly abused in various ways. And there's a real culture of intolerance in sending people to jail, as I said, for what they say, for, their speak, for speaking out. Uh, as a result of that culture of intolerance, you get the rise of the modern First Amendment and some kind of ideas about uh, sort of tolerating speech you don't agree with, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you also get the rise of new types of security bureaucracies, like we've already mentioned, run by, like, J. Edgar Hoover, Mm -hmm. who begin to do the same types of repression of the left or who they see as the kind of communist threat, but they are doing it as law enforcement officers and as bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. And so there's a a shift in technique, is the way that I sort of describe it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in the First World War, there's a lot more... uh, Straight repression and mob violence and straight political censorship. In the second Red Scare, there are instances of, uh, straight up censorship. Famously in the Dennis case, which sends, you know, the leaders of the Communist Party to jail for, uh, conspiring to advocate the overthrow of the government, which is a kind of twisted, mm-hmm. far down the line sense. So, you know, they're really sent to jail for talking about and speaking about Marxism. Um, but there's many fewer of those prosecutions than there were during World War I. That the preferred technique during the Second Red Scare is to register potential dissidents, to surveil potential dissidents, to prevent people from coming into the borders with visa controls, to prevent radical Americans from leaving the borders with passport controls. And these are all processes that are run by sort of new bureaucracies of sort of technocrats who see their job as policing the policing the safety of the nation. And so it creates an, another very chilling atmosphere for radicals, but it's chilling, I think, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, one of the most interesting things that comes out of this period are the new secrecy laws and secrecy techniques. Because in World War I, uh, there was concern about spies, but there was also just concern about criticizing the war. Mm-hmm. And what happens in the 1930s and 1940s, and in particular, there's an interesting case during World War II. Uh, where uh, there's a, one of these Nazi spies you talk about is a guy called Edmund Karl Hein,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who's a, uh unemployed automobile executive who comes back from Germany. He'd been working for Ford in Germany before he got fired. And he comes back in the late 30s and is working for Volkswagen and for a Nazi spy ring, uh, gathering up information about American airplane uh, capacity in the lead-up to the war. And he's arrested by the FBI, who sort of have an insider, they have a double agent, they run a sting operation. Um, He's arrested and prosecuted successfully for espionage. And he appeals and says, well, what I've been doing is just gathering publicly available information. Everything I sent back to the Nazis was just out of newspapers. I went to some air shows. I spoke to some people. And his lawyers, which include some civil liberties advocates, say, if this is spying, then it's illegal to kind of share publicly available information about defense policy. Well, then that's going to be incredibly chilling to free speech rights in the country. Mm -hmm. And those arguments are effective. It's actually learned hand who's still an appeals court judge, you know, Mm -hmm. decades after we talked about him in the masses case. He overturns the conviction and lets fine go free on the grounds that the Espionage Act, this national defense information, this clause that's been very weird. Uh, for 30 years. He says it has to mean secret information. It can't just mean national defense information or that will affect our right to free speech. Mm-hmm. And the Justice Department actually appeals that decision and says, if you interpret the Espionage Act this way, we're going to have no choice but to begin to stamp a whole lot more information secret. And that's in fact what they'll begin to do in the early Cold War, issuing new secrecy regime orders, new classification orders. And again, I think that that's telling, that it's a real shift mm-hmm. in classification, in censorship policy rather where once the, in World War I, the state was repressing speech and preventing people from saying what they thought in public. In the 40s and 50s, it begins to be more tolerant of the right to criticise the government, although that has limits still. But by and large, it's more tolerant of speech. But rather than censoring speech, what it begins to do is censor the information upon which citizens might base their speech, might base their opinions. And again, that's repressive, but it's repressive in a more sort of technocratic, a more sort of neutral-looking fashion. And it looks more legitimate to people in the context of the of the spy scares of the 1950s who say, you know, we don't want to necessarily, we might argue about whether or not communists have the right to speech, mm-hmm. uh, but everyone can agree we shouldn't let people steal our secrets. So we need these new technologies to protect ourselves. And those laws, uh, which is, you know, it's an executive order that Harry Truman passes in 1951 that establishes our modern classification system, I think is deeply ironic because what he does in that order is say the president has the unilateral authority to decide what information can be kept secret and under what terms. And that's exactly the same type of thing that Woodrow Wilson's Congress had removed from the original Espionage Act in 1917 mm-hmm. because it was seen as too controversial. Uh, but in 1951, when Truman takes his power by executive order, there's almost no complaint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've lived with that system uh, ever since.
1: And you you make the the great point that in 1948 the, the I think a journalist named Kinney I think or something if I remember correctly mm-hmm. he he published information about the this uh, use of uh, classification so on and so forth and he got a Pulitzer Prize for it because it was dug up information um, and and then so that was just put on the back burner for a couple of years until people calmed down about it and then. Uh, in the middle of the Korean War, um, they figured nobody would say anything, and they did. That's correct. Yeah.
0: So that, that that's those it. orders were being worked on in World War II. They're part of that ongoing experimentation as people are frustrated with the laws. And the little board that's, that's trying to write them is called the Security Advisory Board. It's a little organization in the sort of war department. Uh, and well, it's multi-branches, but it's during the war. At the end of the war, it it moves over and sort of survives the shutdown of the war agencies and it keeps kind of planning a new classification system. And that's that, that information leaks uh, to Nat Finney uh, in 47, 48 and he wins the Pulitzer because people think that this is a really big deal. Um, Truman makes, lets it go quiet for a little while and then rolls it back out in 51. Um, and that's the system that we have today.
1: It's interesting to me that, that, Hoover being in place for five decades, whether well, some of this change in attitude comes from his experience of what works and what doesn 't work, and him getting a little bit sneakier about it, you know, that you can you can do things behind the scenes and accomplish what you want to without making such a big fuss out in front and He was a kind of behind the scenes guy uh, i don 't know i 'm sure it 's not all hoover's fault, but he seems to be have been satisfied with each of the Uh, shifts as they took place as he got older. So he must have had some hand in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's he's involved and people who have a very similar mindset to him are involved in, you know, they understand their job and they're given a bureaucratic role as being to protect the security of the nation. Now, they understand that role in a very particular light and have a particular ideology behind it. Um, But once you create kind of bureaucratic institutions whose job it is, to advocate for security, whenever you put them in a meeting, Mm -hmm. that's what they're gonna do. Mm -hmm. And then because they have their own files, often classified, they're able to very effectively say to people, we have information that you don't have that suggests we need to do the following things. And that's a very powerful argument in the context of fear, which is real uh, in the mid 20th century and was real many times throughout the 20th century. And so this is one of the things about secrecy that I think is particularly dangerous and part of the, the story I wanted to tell in this book is that um, secrecy builds on itself and it also builds its own legitimacy because you can always say you don't know, you know, when someone tries to challenge secrecy. Mm-hmm. you can set the the people who are keeping the secrets can say well there's information we have here that it would be very dangerous if it got out and you're just going to have to trust us mm-hmm. and this and the court system in particular has been mm-hmm. very deferential to those claims it has said that judges can't judge whether or not there's a harm to national security from disclosure we'll just trust the officials the the bureaucrats in charge and so there's a uh you know the way that I tell the story is that people who want to protect the the security of the nation with that their particular vision of what that might mean, uh, will really try a lot of different techniques uh, to do that. They'll try to censor critics. They'll try to prosecute newspapers who publish state information. They'll try to keep information secure at the source. And it's a kind of let a thousand flowers bloom kind of approach. What happens is that when they try to take on the newspaper industry or they Mm. try to censor free speech, they run up against very serious opposition from powerful lobby groups, powerful interest groups, the media that both have political clout, but can also mobilize the First Amendment to kind of stop those tactics. But the one that turns out to be effective is maintaining secrets within the bureaucracy and and punishing people who leak information because they're seen as their own employees who they can sort of exercise their own control over. So what grows is a secrecy system targeted at classifying information within the state, less because it's a kind of master plan and more because it's the survival of the fittest right and as different strategies are tried this is the one that proves the most robust because it receives the less the least pushback uh from civil society
1: your your story about the role of the newspapers right from the beginning in this and uh, the pushback against the original parts of the law that might have influenced them and every time there's any amendments if it's going to affect the press they push back against that one particular thing um is interesting because when the classification system gets so uh, huge in the 60s, then, then there's uh, now almost an alliance between uh, leakers at low levels in the government and the press to, to you know, cooperate in getting some information out. It, it's a nice distinction you make in your book that if you're high enough up in the hierarchy um, and you have to be pretty high, that if you're doing the ones that are doing the leaking, uh, you never get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but, so let's, let's go to the leaking 1960s. <laughs> sure, sure. Daniel so, Ellsberg is, is, is a Bay Area, uh, or has been until, you know, he passed away recently, uh, a Bay Area, a great personality. So anyway, we, you can tell his story because he, he didn't start off that way either. No. So, you know, the story I tell is that you construct this very robust,
0: aggressive secrecy regime in the late 1940s and early 1950s, uh, and it really works through the kind of Eisenhower years and through the kind of early Cold War. And it begins to fall apart or get put under new strain during the ruptures that follow the Vietnam War, uh, as people have become very critical of that war, which is waged uh, and developed originally in secret. Uh, and one of the, the sort of breaking points that will emerge is uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who'd been a kind of rand uh, insider or a kind of defense intellectual, uh, who'd been on the inside of a lot of the sort of secret meetings, um, he becomes exposed to the anti-war movement by the late 60s and becomes more disillusioned uh, with the war. Now, we often today think about Ellsberg as a kind of noble lone insider, a kind of man of conscience. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at his story as it actually developed and as he himself tells it in his memoirs, it was really about becoming exposed to a very active uh, anti-war movement Mm -hmm. draft uh, resistors, people burning their draft cards, civil disobedience, that is a sort of clarifying moment for him. And he stops thinking of himself primarily as someone who's working on the inside Mm -hmm. and begins to think he should act like the sort of social movements on the outside Mm -hmm. and looking for his own ways to oppose the war through civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. And what he hits upon is the idea of removing the Pentagon Papers, which is an internal document, uh, you know, 40-odd volumes, thousands of pages long, documenting the internal history of the war that uh, the Defence Secretary McNamara had ordered produced in his own, I think, crisis of conscience to try to help understand how the policy had gone so wrong and had, had put the US into such a disastrous war. And Ellsberg wants the public to know that the how long they've been lied to about the Vietnam policy, and he thinks this will help bring the war to an end. Uh, and he shops that to various politicians, actually, in the first instance, Trying to get them to read the documents into the, onto the congressional floor where they would be spared any prosecution. But they, they turn him down. McGovern turns him down and Fulbright turns him down. And ultimately he takes it, uh, to the New York Times. And the New York Times has an internal debate about whether or not they should publish these classified documents because the laws are very unclear at this point. They're really not being tested. They, they're constructed in the early Cold War and then they're just sort of sitting there, uh, menacingly. And in the end, the New York Times publishers from the Pentagon Papers. And the Nixon administration uh, decides that it's going to try to prevent the New York Times from publishing any further portions, which is a really extreme form of censorship known as prior restraint, which even back in the 19th century, prior restraint was seen as one of the kind of forms of censorship that really has to be outside the First Amendment. The, the idea at the time was, well, you, you can be punished after what you say, but you can't be prevented from saying it in the first place. But the Nixon administration decides they're gonna to try to prevent the Times from even publishing the documents. And so Ellsberg working with allies in the anti-war movement sort of smuggles copies of the documents to other newspapers, including the Washington Post, which is also then prosecuted by uh, the Nixon administration. And it produces a very hasty Supreme Court decision 13 days later, much faster than the normal Supreme Court process. Where the Supreme Court has to confront the issue of whether or not the administration has the constitutional authority to prevent the publication of secret information. And all of the judges say, well, the majority of the judges say, no, right? This is too big a burden, right? Too dangerous a form of censorship. And so because the Nixon administration has sort of gone so hard, they lose the case and the New York Times and the Washington Post get to publish. From my point of view, it's actually a sort of missed opportunity for the US to really make sense of this patched together secrecy law that they have, where you have this old 1917 law and these new 1951 classification orders and a bunch of other statutes all kind of tacked on. Uh, And the reason for that is twofold. The first is that one of the dangerous things about the Espionage Act is it's not clear whether or not it exempts the press. Mm -hmm. Some people read it to say that it doesn't cover the press. And some people read it to say that actually, no, the press is included. If they publish secret information without authorization, they should be guilty of the Espionage Act. And whether or not that clause and the First Amendment are in contradiction, which I think they are, but that's never been tested. And it was never tested in the Pentagon Papers case because the Nixon administration didn't try to prosecute and punish after publication. They tried to prevent publication altogether. Mm -hmm. And if you read the various decisions in the Pentagon Papers case, there are about five judges, which would be a majority. Who seem to imply that if the Nixon administration had tried the lesser strategy of punishing after publication, that they would have upheld it, but that's never been pursued. that the, the, no administration has ever tried to prosecute the press since that time for publication, um, and so we just don't know the state of the law there, but because the New York Times and the Post published, we think it's a great victory for freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. The second problem is that it doesn't say anything about whether or not Ellsberg had a right to leak the information. Mm -hmm. Because what he's done is broken the Espionage Act by providing information to the Times who's not authorized to receive it. And that case would have been and should have been a a very important test for whether the Espionage Act is constitutional and how it should handle leak cases. Um, But again, the Nixon administration couldn't help itself. It formed a small group in the White House to deal with its problem of leaks, leaks (laughs) like Ellsberg's. And one of the members of this group says uh, to his aunt, I believe, or his mother-in-law, he says, I've got a great new job in the White House. I'm fixing leaks. Mm-hmm. And she says, it's great to have a plumber in the family. <laughs> and that group then gets the name The Plumbers. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they do before they break into the Watergate is they break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist office uh, to try to get dirt on Ellsberg that the Nixon administration can then leak to the press. Mm-hmm. When Watergate breaks out uh, as a scandal... Some of this information about what had been done in the Ellsberg prosecution leaks. And the case against Daniel Ellsberg and Tony Rousseau, who worked with him to leak the papers but is often forgotten, is thrown out for misconduct. Um, And so there's no decision in the Ellsberg case. It's a good result for Ellsberg and for Rousseau, and it's probably a good result for justice, but it leaves very unclear whether or not leakers have the right uh, to leak. And in fact, what we will learn over the next few decades is that the source who provides the information to the press generally is not protected by the First Amendment and has no rights and is therefore subject to Espionage Act prosecutions. And so far, the balancing act has been that the press has been free to publish those secrets if they can get them. Uh, But the source, if they leak and if they're caught, they have been found liable and subject to Espionage Act uh, prosecution.
1: And that's why the press thinks that they have a, a right to withhold the information of who the source was.
0: Correct. So the the, the the next sort of stage of this confrontation, then, is uh, as this sort of balancing act has been worked out, right, where the, the U.S. has balanced its desire to have a free press on the one hand and a security state that can keep secrets on the other. And it said, well, we've got to let the press publish what they want, but we've got to be able to punish the leaker. Uh, the next stage of that battle is the security state trying to investigate and prosecute the leaker will subpoena newspapers for who their source was, Mm. and the press have been very vigorous in protesting that move, saying that that's an interference with their liberties, and there's been a lot of legal decisions on that front, there's been a lot of statutes uh, passed at the state level to provide a reporter's privilege, Uh, basically the same thing as like an attorney-client privilege or doctor privilege, Mm. to say that the society benefits from allowing confidentiality in these cases, even if it might interfere with the prosecution of any one crime. Uh, but there's been no federal right, uh, no First Amendment right recognized to a reporter's privilege, and there's been no federal shield law to protect journalists and their sources, and that's been a source of repeated tension. Um, it was a particular source of tension during the war on terror.
1: Now, that was a nice nuance in your book because a lot of people just think that that uh, Ellsberg won, and uh, you quote uh, one of the earlier cases where Justice Holmes was saying, he says, you have no right you know, to, to break your contract. That's not, yeah. You know, that, that's that's not there. If it was, if it was decided the way that was decided, it would have been pretty clear that Ellsberg, even though the press could publish, Ellsberg himself uh, had committed a crime and therefore would go to jail.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we don't, you know, we now know, like in 1987, in the Morrison case, uh, a, man, a guy who leaked. Uh, Defense Information to Jane's Defense Weekly is the first successful leak prosecution, Mm -hmm. and that establishes a precedent. It's a a small case that not a lot of people pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But then beginning in about 2005, uh, the Bush administration and then the Obama administration and then the Trump administration will begin to much more vigorously use the Espionage Act to prosecute leakers. And so there's really, I think, on my count, been about five, just a handful of leak prosecutions under the Espionage Act until 2005. Mm -hmm. And since 2005, there have been at least 14. Mm -hmm. um, And those have been incredibly successful. So, Chelsea Manning, Terry Albury, Thomas Drake, uh, Edward Snowden, uh, Daniel Hale have all faced uh, Espionage Act prosecutions. And they've got no, the courts have not recognized any First Amendment right to leak the information or First Amendment interest in the public learning what's being disclosed. Those people can't say what they're doing is in the public interest or that they're informing the public of a real abuse because the law says if you disclose information to someone not entitled to receive it, you're guilty. Um, and it's turned out to be a very powerful tool to prosecute leakers.
1: And what was not powerful was the the reports that were done, like the church committee and so on, that, that went through and analyzed it, said all the terrible things. Yes, there was all kinds of loss of trust between, as you say, between 64 and 74 The amount of trust in the government went from 62, went from 60 some percent to 22 percent or something like that, that that people just uh, distrust of the government went up from 22 percent to to 60 some percent or something in just 10 years. It was a bad 10 years for the government in general um, with the Vietnam War and the civil rights and all that kind of stuff. But but even so, uh, it, it sort of set the basis for what we've had ever since, which has been nearly half the people or more than half the people and going back and forth don't trust the government.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, it's a problem, both because the secrecy facilitates actual abuses, Mm -hmm. right? So the abuses of the sixties were things like the FBI infiltrating and intimidating, uh, and harassing civil rights movements and, uh, the new left and, you know, involved in the assassination of Fred Hampton Jr. Uh, sorry, Fred Hampton. Uh, so there's abuses that happen um, and that the church committee sort of reports on those abuses and they, they institute some fairly tepid reforms. But there's no effort to take on the heart of the secrecy system. And in my point of view, uh, it's really a kind of turning point that doesn't turn. I sort of mm-hmm. don't really understand politically why there wasn't the will to have more foundational reform in that mid-1970s moment. It has a lot to do, I think, with a small group of security hawks Uh, particularly in the Ford administration, and they're people who should be familiar to us because they'll be at the center of American politics for the next few decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, the chief of staff is Donald Rumsfeld, and then Dick Cheney. uh, Antonin Scalia is in the Office of Legal Counsel at that point. Uh, Brent Scowcroft is involved. George H.W. Bush will become the CIA director. And this group is able to effectively say, well, yeah, there were problems in the past, but we can't risk more secrets spilling out, and we need to sort of maintain the ship, and that, that works pretty effectively. Um, to create a secrecy regime that lives through the crisis of the 1970s, that lives through Iran-Contra, that lives through the end of the Cold War, and is still there uh, to be deployed uh, during the War on Terror, which will lead to a new round of abuses, uh, such as torture and warrantless wiretapping. Um, but beyond those particular abuses, I think the point you're making is crucial, which is that one of the things that the secrecy system has done uh, has been really eroded Americans' faith in their own government. Um, And I think a lot of the kind of crisis in today's uh, democracy, a lot of the fear of the government, the anxiety, the conspiracy theory has been produced in no small part by uh, the amount of secrecy. And you, you look at sort of the history of conspiracy theory in America. Now, there's always been conspiracy theories. But in the 19th century, people thought that the world was being run by a kind of small group of Jewish bankers or Catholics or Freemasons, these secret societies Mm -hmm. that had their own kind of rituals, and you couldn't work out what they were really doing. (laughs) By the 1950s, what's interesting is that the government itself becomes the thing that people think is the conspiracy, Mm -hmm. because the government itself has become its own type of secret society, its rituals of classification, its security badges, its inside and its outside, and I think it's no accident that the Q QAnon theory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the the figurehead of QAnon is named Q uh, for the level of the security clearance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. you see in the 20th century, a lot of the kind of anxiety, fear, distrust of the government that has been so corrosive to the possibilities of governance and so corrosive to the public sphere uh, has been bred uh, by the rise of secrecy.
1: Well, we're, For the sake of time, we're going to skip around Contra and we're going to skip the 90s and we're come back to Dick Cheney uh, as vice president, um, and, and we're going to go back t- to the Iraq war and, and the torture thing, because I think that's such a crucial shift in the United States' approach. Maybe not factually, I'm sure that some things happened before, but, but straight out and say that this is our policy, that, that we don't consider it torture. We, other people may, but we don't, and we're going to pursue this and and the lies that surround that but before we go there i want to want to ask you one question about dick cheney now being behind his daughter liz cheney's uh, attempt to bring down donald trump because he thinks donald trump is the greatest danger to american democracy because he, he's such so authoritarian and i i just find that so ironic you know i mean there's just something like if anybody would know who's too authoritarian, it should be Dick Cheney. He like, came as close to, to, to trying to be a dictator behind the scenes as, as anybody. It seems to me. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would go quite that far, uh, but, <laughs> but he definitely believes in an incredibly strong presidency, yeah. and really spends his political career building the powers of the presidency. I think for you know uh, unjust. Reasons and for unjust ends, and so I think it. You know, one of the but one of the things that people were always critical about when someone like Cheney was trying to advocate for the powers of the presidency was, well, you don't know who's going to occupy that office in the future, mm-hmm. right? And and okay. so there's a sort of uh, chickens coming home to roost fear I feel here that he has done a lot for the past thirty years since uh, since the the scandals of nineteen seventy five when he was a young staffer uh, in the Ford administration to build an incredibly powerful, secretive president that he said repeatedly had to have the ability to act with dispatch, had to be able to act in secrecy, had to have authority. Um, And that now means that the occupant of that White House is a very important person. Uh, I mean, always has been, but has particular powers at their
1: disposal. Well, uh, so let's go, go to the torture decision and talk about it a little bit. But when that decision was made, I thought right away, it's not going to take long before on our television shows people, the police and the military and everything will, will torture people that they get and, and they will, within 10 minutes of torturing them, get the information that they were looking for and move on and stop things from happening and, and make this an extremely acceptable idea or, or to the extent that they can, to make it an acceptable idea in our society. But the facts are all on the other side, that this is not how to get information. So why don't you just tell a little bit about that story? Because you do a great job in the book about that.
0: Yeah. So it was an upsetting part of the book to write and to spend time reading about the torture program. Yeah. Um, You know, the way that it happened, I think is important, right? There wasn't a public decision. Hmm. It was a private decision made in secret. And the documents about the you know, deciding that what torture was, what didn't didn't meet the level of torture, what was and wasn't within America's legal obligations, and that you could you know anything up to like serious bodily harm mm-hmm. didn't constitute torture would be fine with America's legal commitments. All of those documents were classified, and you know the, at the time, the czar of kind of the secrecy system, uh, the information classification system, William Leonard said that the decision to classify those policy documents was one of the worst decisions of classification he'd ever seen because there was nothing operational. Mm-hmm. in them. They were just policy documents, which a democracy should have been able to debate in advance. Now, I could see in the fear after nine eleven that you might say, we're not going to tell you where we're holding these particular people or who even these people are, but what we're going to do to them mm-hmm. should have been publicly debated and publicly discussed, and it wasn't. Uh, and so what instead happens is a decision is made behind closed doors through kind of elaborate internal secret legal memos, which is the sort of preferred mode of the executive branch that's developed uh, across the second half of the 20th century. And, um, you know, the great tragedy, I think, uh, beyond the the damage that's done to individual people and just how brutal the torture was, and those who haven't read some of the torture report, even though it's highly redacted, and those who haven't seen some of the documentaries about, say, Abu Zubaydah, uh, you know, I think as an act of sort of engaged citizenship should try to reckon with what the US uh, did in the early war on terror. But beyond how immoral the torture program was, it wasn't fit for purpose, Mm -hmm. uh, which was supposed to be to extract usable intelligence. And the program was developed by a couple of psychologists who'd previously been involved uh, in developing, uh, in training American soldiers how to resist psychological torture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they sort of reverse engineer a torture program based on that. Uh, But the problem was that that program was... Designed to help uh, American soldiers learn how not to break, uh, to make false confessions. That was what the great fear was through the Cold War: was that American soldiers would go overseas, they'd be broken by torture, or they would be brainwashed, communist sort of brainwashed. This is right. it all sort of traces back to the Manchurian Candidate kind of fears, and uh, the Korean War era, and that you needed to train Americans not to be able to to sort of be able to resist enough that they would not make false confessions because they understood that under extreme torture, people will say what the torturer wants them to say to stop the torture. And so when you get to the early war on terror, the program that is created, reverse engineered out of those anti-psychological intimidation programs, uh, turns out to do exactly what it was designed to do. It encourages people to make false confessions, to do whatever they can to stop the torture. And so no useful intelligence uh, is produced by the torture programs, um, false intelligence is fed into the mix that hurts. Uh, hurts intelligence gathering. Some of the sort of early reports that there was a connection between uh, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and Al Qaeda in the lead up to 9-11 come out of one of those uh, suspects was being tortured. And so, what you really have and I think it's a typical process that happens in these sort of in these secretive uh, in these secretive programs, is that. One small group of people has made a bad decision to invest another small group of people with incredible power. And then neither of them have an interest in acknowledging that what they're doing is not working or is wrong. And they're doing it all in secret. So there's not the sort of oversight you would normally expect. And then they fight tooth and nail to prevent the details of what was done from becoming public. And that process that lot, has really prevented America from ever coming to terms with what was done uh, during the torture program. Um, you know, the, there was a long torture. Investigation by the the Senate that was blocked from being released in various ways. Some members of the CIA would sort of leak favorable stories to the media about what they had done on torture, how effective it had been. They never met with any threats. People uh, under the Espionage Act. People who leak more critical information, who seek to sort of show that it wasn't an effective program. Mm-hmm. Well, they're technically guilty of the Espionage Act violation so they can be prosecuted. So this ability to kind of maintain how the information is disclosed to the public means that there's been no real reckoning, uh, with what was done. Uh, and there's some polling data that shows that people have become more tolerant of torture over mm-hmm. time because they've just kind of got used to the idea. And I think it's a real, it's a, it's a tragedy and it's a moral outrage.
1: And you you mentioned one detail, the movie Zero Dark Thirty uh, was, even though it it exposed some of what was already exposed of the torture, but it made it look like it led to usable information and therefore the CIA favored the movie. Yes. Subtle. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, this is, uh, you know, since the beginning of the CIA, Mm -hmm. uh, they've been very effective at courting favorable media coverage, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Helping to to provide enough information, enough confirmation, enough support to people who want to sort of uh, mythologize or lionize their work, mm-hmm. and then very effective at at uh, prosecuting people who want to disclose information that will be damaging uh, to what the CIA has been up to. And one of the stories that the book tells is you know dating back to the sort of uh, revolutions of the nineteen fifties, uh, sort of the coups of the nineteen fifties, uh, is that the CIA has never been anywhere near as effective at doing audit wants to be doing as it pretends Mm -hmm. um, and that secrecy has been incredibly helpful to it Um, and it's uh, again one of these cases where secrecy helps produce its own legitimacy uh, and that's very dangerous uh, for a democracy
1: yeah we we don't have enough time to talk about the drone program but the drone program also has a fairly similar thing to the torture program in the sense that Um, How effective is it? And and is there no collateral damage? No, there's lots of collateral damage that's done. So I come for my last big question for you. Among all the other damage uh, that doing things this way has caused the United States, both in the world and and at home, um, is it a little bit like the national debt, you know, that, that, you know, we, we can't really tell China certain things because we owe them money, you know, they can do, or, or even if we didn't owe them any money, they could do things in the markets against us. So we, we leave ourselves in a weak position. It seems to me that all of this action on our part leaves us in a very weak position for discussing other countries doing things which has a lot of collateral damage. And therefore, you know, we don't want to point to the f- a finger right back at us and say, you know, after 9-11, we, we, had a, we caused a lot of collateral damage. Um, and therefore, we can't say, you guys can't. I mean, we can say it, um, but but you know, who listens? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a
0: fair a fair statement. I mean, I'm a I'm not a citizen of the country, uh, so I I'm not in a position to tell American citizens how to feel about what's being done. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly the case uh, that a lot of these secrets uh, that have been kept, you know, have been kept more from the American public and more effectively from the American public than they've been kept from they're from foreign nations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that is is very obvious about the drone program, for instance, I mean, it was technically secret for a long time when it was running early on. And that allowed uh, administration officials to say things like, we've never harmed a civilian.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And, and there's a quote I have in the book. I can't remember who exactly said it at this point, but he says, you know, this, is, this drone program is very popular. It's mm-hmm. only unpopular in Yemen and Somalia and other places. Because yeah. there was no confusion in Yemen and Somalia what the drone program meant. Right. You know, the rest of the world knew what was being done. Um, the secrecy was a secrecy aimed at the American public by and large, mm-hmm. uh, or effectively by and large. And you know, that um is really damaging. Um it, and will produce foreign policy blowback uh in various forms, either reputational or or potentially worse, I fear. Um and that the way democracy is supposed to run its foreign policy is that the American public makes a decision that it's worth the risk of those things because they approve of the policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those decisions are being made in their name and then are sort of drip-drip disclosures to help produce legitimacy and support behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that by the time Americans are debating, was it the right thing to do to assassinate someone like Anwar al alaki It's already being done. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, sort of, you hear that and then you hear another disclosure and it's a very different debate if you're paying attention, then the debate that would have been had if some candidate had said, if I'm elected, here's what's my policy going to be. Are you mm-hmm. in favor or are you against? You
1: know, I've seen the similar statistics as there are in your book about uh, the, of all the classified information that exists, 70% of it or so is just to hide something embarrassing or humiliating that happened and not really a real secret. Just the people who were involved did something stupid um, and, and therefore they want to hide it or they did something which they know is illegal, they want to hide it and that certain amount is effective. But, um, but we'll, we'll get to, uh, the, well, there's a question here from the audience, um, for you personally, during your research for this book, was there anything that you discovered that surprised or shocked you?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, there were a number of, a number of things. No. Uh, I'll point to just two, and then they may be not the kind of nugget archival finds that you've, you expect, which is no surprise really, because part of the story that I'm trying to tell here is that there are not these kind of amazing secrets hidden away in the bowels of the government. There's a lot of just regular old politics happening that has the stamp of secret on it. Um, but the two things that were, were really surprising to me were the origins of this Defense Secrets Act in this Japanese spy scare in the 1910s, mm-hmm. which was something I didn't really know of. I mean, I knew about the animosity of the between Japan and the U.S. at that time that led to immigration restrictions. But this character, Richmond Hobson, who is really the advocate of these early secrecy laws, is the kind of character I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a kind of wild character with a strange story about how he comes to prominence as a as a sort of hero of the spanish-american war where he didn't really do very much but is kind of built up by um, the media hmm. Um and then is really predicting in 1911 that the us will be at war within japan within months and a real kind of uh fear monger and i didn't know that character or that moment's role in the origins of the secrecy law and that was very fascinating um and then the second that was a huge surprise to me was how long uh people thought the espionage act was not fit for purpose Mm-hmm. So it it's passed in 1917, and you know I knew about it in its World War One uses, and then I really knew about it again in the War on Terror when I knew it was being used so effectively to prosecute leakers and was this very ominous and threatening uh, law, but actually from about the 1920s to about to really up until 2000. Um, most people who looked, who looked at it, who were sort of security hawks, who wanted to use it to prosecute leakers, to keep secrets, were complaining that they thought it was outdated, it was weak, they needed a tougher law. And as late as 2000, uh, Congress actually passed a tougher espionage act that would have been what they thought more effective uh, at keeping secrets and prosecuting leakers. And Bill Clinton vetoed it. Mm-hmm. And then when the Republicans take power in 2000, they, they say, we need to do an investigation of the secrecy laws. We want a new law. Hmm. And in 2004, John Ashcroft comes back to Congress and says, actually, we've just taken a look at the Espionage Act, and it is good to go. We don't need a new law. We can just use it as it is. And we think if, with enough intent, it will be very effective. And they turned out to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a strange case of a law that for almost a century, people thought might have been a bit wobbly, a bit weak. Uh, In a different context, people just decide to use it, and it turns out to be dangerously strong. Um, And that is an unusual sort of rhythm for the lifespan of a law, and a nice reminder that no one's ever been happy with the Espionage Act, they've been unhappy for different reasons, uh, but that it really deserves a a hard look and some revision uh, because it's been uh, interpreted all sorts of ways.
1: We have one last question from the audience. Is there anything that you wrote about in your book that would have violated the Espionage Act? I am not aware of
0: anything. <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't accessed anything that was classified. Um, you know, everything I received was... Uh, I i had a couple of FOIAs that were successful that, you know, I was lucky those can take a long time. Um, so those were the, you know, I got a couple of FBI files that had not previously been disclosed, but everything else was already on the public record. And I guess in some ways that's... That, that matches my general sense that, you know, open source intelligence and open source intelligence gathering will get you a long way. Um, you don't need to get all the secrets, uh, to work out what's going on.
1: Yeah. So the, the cure, uh, of, of all of the secrecy, uh, may or may not be worse than the disease, but they're certainly in competition, um, for, for how do we deal with these problems? You know, what's worse, the problems, One thing I found very interesting about your book was how little damage was done say by the the Rosenbergs, you know, the Ethel Rosenberg. And that that whole story, fascinating. I'm sorry we don't have time for that. But, um, well, I'm going to ask one question about it, even though I said I was done. And that is, you you tell the story about uh, David Glassberg, who was the brother of Ethel Rosenberg, and he was put pressure on to uh, give up his sister in order to uh, sac- sacrifice his sister so that his wife wouldn't get charged. And the person who was at least involved in making that sort of putting that pressure on him was Roy Cohn, who, mm-hmm. who, who was Donald Trump's uh, advisor and you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and quite a character. Um, doesn't it seem a little bit odd that, that we allow our, our, our law enforcers? To, to To black may feel people like that into into saying what they want to say, it seems also to come up with answers which might not be accurate in order to protect whoever they need to protect
0: yeah, so I mean again, this is a part of the problem with the, the that moment is that there were spies mm-hmm. um, yeah. they weren't they weren 't I think up to quite as much that was terrifying as we might imagine. A lot of what they were passing back and forth to the Soviet Union was sort of low level political scuttlebutt, but there was some serious industrial espionage and there was some other spying going on. Right. Um, the Espionage Act is very effective at prosecuting actual spies. It's pretty straightforward law. If you get evidence of it, you can prosecute them. What went wrong with the Rosenberg case is they had on the, they, uh, the, uh, they'd, intercepted evidence that they decrypted from the Soviet uh, communications that named a bunch of people who were spies. Um, And they knew that Rosenberg, Julius Rosenberg, was spying. Now, what he had done was maybe not all that threatening, but he was definitely spying. And so they wanted to prosecute Julius, but Julius wouldn't confess. And they didn't want to disclose the fact that they'd cracked Soviet code because that was secret. Mm -hmm. And so they were sort of checkmated on a meaningful espionage act prosecution by their own desire to keep secrets. And this is a thing that will happen repeatedly, actually. Mm-hmm. And that produced the situation where they wanted Rosenberg to confess and they wanted Rosenberg to name other names, not because they didn't necessarily know who the spies were, but because they needed it on the public record to not release publicly that they'd cracked code. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they begin bringing this pressure to bear on Ethel in the hopes that that will cause Julius to confess Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of work with David Greenglass to say, well, if you don't work with us to implicate your sister, to bring pressure to bear on her husband, we will prosecute your wife. Um, and it's all a kind of uh, Orwellian workaround. Yeah. With the fact that they're trying to keep the the actual evidence they have classified in the first place. And it sends, uh, you know, Julius and Ethel to, uh, to the electric chair. Uh, Ethel, who seems to have conducted no espionage. Um, And even if she had, the kind of thing that she was doing was much less than what someone like uh, Klaus Fuchs was -hmm. doing, who had been spying as the British uh, German migrated to Britain and the US, Um, and he receives, I think, fourteen years in jail and is let out early and spends the rest of his life living in East Germany. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas you know Ethel is executed, and so the the story for me is that this proves that the Espionage Act has plenty of teeth to prosecute genuine spies. Um, but secrecy can actually gum up the works of that kind of effective policing task and then produce its own forms of historical
1: injustice. Yeah, and one one last point about that, you know, for, for the spies and for the people who are enforcing all these rules is that uh, it leaves some hope for, for humanity that a lot of them suffered for what they did. They not, not suffered in kind of some... Um, repentance or, or, or you know, pain or suffering from that point of view, but mentally suffering from having to do these lies all the time and having to, to present things in a way which wasn't accurate. They, they were convinced, at least at the beginning, that they were doing something for the good of the nation, but they, they weren't able to hold on to that long enough to hold their sanity sometimes. It seems to be one of the stories that, that goes through your, your narrative as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh... There's a lot of the early Cold Warriors um, you know, who really have psychological breakdowns. Uh and it's I mean, it's just a tough thing to do, to be waging, you know, to sort of try to get uh covert warfare happening in the Eastern bloc or um and so there's some stories there in the book of people like Frank Wisner um, mm. and sort of early CIA agent who has a has a mental breakdown and ultimately unfortunately dies by suicide. Um and that this is all um you know the cost is ultimately borne ex outside the country but it's also in some cases borne by the people who perpetrate it. um but for every person like Wisner you can also tell another story of someone who you know took money to run a kind of project for the CIA mm. and then retired to a very happy retirement uh yeah. in you know and so it 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 depends but there is the story in the cold war i tell is that there's something about this kind of secrecy world uh, particularly in the heights of the cold war that It elevates the anxiety all around, um, and that is uh, it produces a kind of crisis of anxiety, both within the security state, um, but also in the kind of body politic uh, writ large.
1: It's a good thing we're all calm now and there's no anxiety in our political system. (laughs) Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Lovig, for the state of silence and great history. Um, And uh, I'm glad that nothing violated the Espionage Act that's in there. So thank you very much for joining us. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club and its 121st year of Enlightened Discussion. Thanks for joining us and uh, hope to see you again soon.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.